here's my message today. Integrity, our compass. Proverbs 11.3 says, the integrity of the upright will guide them. A guide is like a compass that takes you in the direction you should go. go. But before I delve into the key word integrity, I want to focus on the word upright. Normally when we hear the word upright, we think of someone who has great moral rectitude, and certainly that would be included. We look at someone who is uh, kind of a person of their word, reliable and and, you know, just a kind of a real good person, maybe not necessarily even a believer, but just good. But, but we have to look at everything through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And by understanding the new covenant, the word upright takes on a new meaning. Because that word appears in the new covenant revelation where Simon Peter and actually Barnabas as well, they had really embraced the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, but then they wavered because of people pressure. Pressure got to them. How many know that's true for all of us? Sometimes people pressure you. Say, do you really believe that? You really believe that? You really think like that? And you feel like, well, you know, you can get a little bit, maybe you say, oh, well, I don't want to say too much. Well, that's how Simon Peter and, and Barnabas got. I mean, the top head guy of the church, some, some would think Simon Peter, he wavered. And Paul noticed that, and he said in Galatians 2.14 about Peter and Barnabas, they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. So to pull back from the grace, the unmerited favor of God, it means in the New Testament definition to not be upright. So we could read this book of Proverbs saying that the integrity of the one who holds on to the grace of God, uh, it will guide that person. It will be a compass to them. Now, now what is integrity? Again, we generally use the to handle weight, to withstand, and, and, the, and, and the ability to withstand, to handle pressure of the one who trusts in God's grace will be a compass to them. Come on, are you, are you hearing what I'm going with this? It, you could say integrity is, is strength. It's like an anchor. Uh, you know, an anchor keeps you positioned. It keeps you in the place where you should be. Lack of anchor for a ship might mean the ship might drift. It, 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 the direction becomes unclear. And, and people without an anchor of integrity don't know necessarily who to get involved with or what to do. They, they drift. Psalm 26, 1 says, I have walked in my integrity and I shall not slip. Meaning, when I have that weight, I can handle pressure. I don't glide away easily. Longevity is tied to integrity. Uh, Psalm 25, 21 says, let integrity and uprightness preserve me. And so I want to announce to you here today, you have received God's grace. You can say yes. If you have, you have received the unmerited ferret of God. You're not trusting in your own ability. You're trusting in God's grace. You have integrity. You have the ability and power to withstand pressure, and that ability will guide you. 
But let me, before I say anything further, talk about the one who is full of integrity, which is God himself. Are you ready for this? God's word, God's love is unimpaired. It is undiminished. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but his word is forever undiminished. It shall never pass away. Jeremiah 1.12, while I'm preaching it now, God said, I will watch over my word to perform it, and my love is never going to fail because my love is everlasting. It cannot fail. It is unimpaired. And so faith, what is faith? It's trusting in this unshakable, undiminished word that became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, I tell you, some of you could receive from God right now if you haven't already. You can say whatever Jesus Christ, the living word, has provided for me, be it healing for your body. I'm talking to you at home watching as well. Be it joy or wisdom or provision. God is a God of integrity. Whatever he has provided is not to be impaired. It stands forever. Oh, let's give the Lord another praise for that. Now, it's interesting in the Bible as I take you through this study today, we look at examples of integrity. Now, generally, I had to say I was thinking, if I've ever heard pre people preach on this and I couldn't remember in particular, it seems normally the examples of people of integrity in the Bible, the two top cases would be Daniel and Joseph. If people want to talk about integrity, some guy was like really a good guy, it'd be like Daniel and Joseph. Now, in all fairness, we don't know a lot about those guys. It's like decades of their life we don't know anything about. So, but from what we know, they kind of look like what we would define as integrous. And we know in Daniel's case, he had the inner strength to not succumb to temptation. That's, that's a beautiful sign of integrity. We look at Joseph. He was falsely accused for rape and he was thrown in prison, but he held on to God. But as, and so I am all for that those were men of integrity. But the Bible never does use the word about them. God never says directly, Daniel, you're an integrous man. But there are three people in the Bible that God directly says these are people of integrity. So I'm going to give you the two first ones real fast. The first one is a pagan king. His name is Abimelech. Don't call your son that. Abimelech. And, and you know, Abraham sometimes lacked integrity. In the beginning of Abraham's story, he went to Egypt and Pharaoh thought that Sarah, his wife, looked so good that he wanted to include her in his harem. And he asked Abraham, who's this beautiful woman with you? Abraham said, oh, she's my sister. That wasn't very integrous. Are you with me? And so, but anyhow, God saved that situation. But you know, sometimes you don't learn your lesson right away. And in Abraham's case, many years went by. And later on, when Sarah was 89, she was still good looking. Let me give you a little clue, your husbands. I always tell my wife, Tina, you are my Sarah at 89. You're still going to make me just swoon. And she says, oh, Peter, you're getting carried away. But I can tell she likes it. She likes that. So I'm giving you that advice, man, to say that. I can tell. She's kind of, oh, you, 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 you say, no, no, she likes it. 
Sarah was 89. I mean, and, and that many years, and, and she, they visit this place where Abimelech is king. And Abimelech says, oh, she's a gorgeous 89-year-old. And, and he says, Abraham, this woman traveling with you, who is she? Oh, he says, she's my sister. Oh, Abraham was a little bit afraid. And so he, he, he says, well, let's prepare her for me to bring her in because they prepared the bride and all that. And then God intervened and, and, and saved the situation. And then God says, here, here is Genesis 20, verse 6. God spoke in a dream to Abimelech. God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. So he was about to sin by taking Abraham's wife, but he didn't know better. So here we learn something interesting, that, that a person can do something ignorantly, and they're still called integrous by God. We also learn that if you will walk in the integrity you have, it'll keep you from sinning. That was a good place to say yes for somebody. Okay, so he's the first guy. Now the second person is Job, arguably the oldest story in the Bible. Now, the story of Job is fascinating because, because for 41 chapters, Job is talking not such good things. And his three friends are not speaking such good things. And at the end of the book, we learn that Job says, I'm sorry. I spoke a bunch of nonsense. I didn't understand you, God. I call, I, he calls God all kinds of awful things. But in the beginning of it, it's kind of an interesting story. You have a conversation between God and Satan. You have to read this for yourself. I didn't make this up. It's in the Bible. And God says there, he says about Job, because all kinds of misfortunes happened. He says, he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to ruin him without a cause. So even though Job said a lot of strange things by the Bible's own record, he had integrity. I'm thinking about that. What, is it? what kind of integrity did Job have? Even Job's wife. I hope you never marry a wife like Job's wife. Because when, when uh, this is not intended as a married sermon, but anyhow, it's coming out that way. Uh, uh, you know, when Job's misfortunes came to him, then Job's wife said, are you still going to hold on to your integrity? In other words, do, are you still going to trust that God is going to help you? Are you not undiminished in this? And so what I learned from Job is, even though he believed wrong and he admitted so, it means that integrity is to hold on when you don't understand everything. You can even have wrong thoughts, but you're saying, I'm going to hold on to God because somehow I believe whatever I am missing, he's going to show it to me. And so God himself says, Job had integrity. How many think that's pretty good? Now, now then there's a third person. The third person where God, and this is the most direct statement by God, God calls David integrous. He said, David. Well, I wouldn't call him integrous. Well, that's why we are happy that you are not God. And God is God and you are you. Because, you know, he would say, well, he'd be the last one. I mean, Daniel and Joseph, I could see those two. Because, you know, uh, David had many falls. One of them, for example, he became proud one time, and it resulted in the death of 70,000 people. I mean, these are major disasters. 
And, and then he, he, he uh, took Bathsheba, had a, had a child with Bathsheba, and he sent Bathsheba's husband Uriah into the battlefield. And he told his soldiers, come on, pull back when the heat of the battle is really on, so hopefully her husband gets killed. How many know that's a very bad thing? I mean, so by all definitions, I would say he's one of the least integrous people, but yet I'm going to read it to you in a moment. God calls David integrous. And then Acts chapter 13 says that David was a man after God's own heart. Now, don't think he got away with sinning. You never get away with sin. The way of the transgressor is hard, and David paid a huge price of, of pain, and his own son died, and all kinds of bad things happened. That's not what we are saying, but, but I'm digging into what does it mean to have integrity, because the moment I announce the word, you may think of some failure in your life, and you say, well, I don't qualify. I can't be included in this, but I would submit to you that, that if we look at the definition of integrity, of the ability to handle pressure, to bring it on, I will still stand strong. That is the biblical definition here. And it says, when God spoke to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 9, this is what God said to Solomon, David's son. He says, he said, I will bless you if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness. So here God is saying, your father David, he walked before me in integrity. And everything in you may say, well, I don't see that. Well, I'm going to take God's word for it. Can somebody say amen to that? And so I say like this, put this on the screen. To understand David's integrity, we must look at how David reacted under pressure. That's what I'm talking about. Integrity is what makes us stand strong under pressure. I may know that there's some pressure going on around us. Maybe you have personal pressure, never mind societal pressure. And integrity is the ability to handle it and to stay strong. And, and, and so you say, well, when, when was David under pressure? We can say, well, when he faced Goliath, and I'm sure that was pressure, but I don't think that was his greatest pressure. The, the battle with Goliath, that was early in his life. He was probably excited, and he was kind of testing his wings. But there is a situation where David was under tremendous pressure. Now, he, we referred to his sin, and at first when David sinned, he tried to cover it up. Ever heard of anybody trying to do that? Oh, good. I didn't think so. Uh, he said, uh, I don't know. What are you talking about? And then a prophet came into his life and spoke something. A man of God came in and, 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 and David acknowledged his sin. And he says, God, wash me. Make me clean. Create in me a clean heart. God, restore me. Bring back the joy. I want to teach others. And of course, how many know God is a good God? So David found mercy, and then he wrote another psalm, Psalm 32, where he says, you know, I used to be silent. I said nothing. I pretended everything was okay. But then I acknowledged everything. I just faced reality. And he says, God forgave me. And he says, I'm a blessed man. I'm one of those people whom God will not impute iniquity. I'm, I'm a blessed man. I, I mean, that's you. So all that happened. All that happened. And, and everything was good. The empire kept going forward of Israel. David was at his peak, but he had gone through this. And then all hell broke loose. He got enormous pressure. Pressure from people. You ever had people pressure? Pressure from family. 
emotional pressure, financial pressure, career pressure. A lot of people in our country are having pressure about their job. Will it be there? David was under enormous pressure. And, and some of it you could say was the consequences of his sin, all right. But, but for example, let me give you some examples. There was one man, I'm giving you a lot of Old Testament names. His name was Ahithophel. It's almost like Abimelech, one of those price names, Ahithophel. And, and he was like, people thought like, wow, Ahithophel. When he spoke, people said, it's like God speaking. And he was like the senior political consultant to King David. And he was also his friend and they hung out together and, 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 and they was like real close for decades. And then suddenly, Ahithophel turned against David. He began to work against him. And, and you can imagine the pressure. Uh, Ahithophel took on the opinion, well, you know, I don't really like what happened. Yeah, sure, God forgave David, but you know what? I don't know if I can forgive him. I mean, that's another thing. I'm not sure. You know, maybe, maybe the bird with a broken wing can never fly straight again. You know, even God can't unscramble scramble eggs. You've heard it, right? I, I don't know if this, you know, I can't see how his life is. I don't like this. It, it just didn't fit his worldview. So he's constantly backstabbing David. Pressure is on. The heat is on. Then his own son Absalom, oh, he was quite a dude. What a hairstyle, I'm telling you. He only cut his hair once a year, and it was thick, thick. Yeah, some of you were praying for such thick hair. And he was like, he was smooth. He was an operator. He, he had designer sunglasses. You know, he, he had a, the, the expensive T-shirt and his $5,000 sneakers. He put himself on Instagram every week and show his latest thing. And he was, he, he was kind of the why you, you wanted to take a selfie with him and put it on your Facebook and say, hey, look who I'm hanging around with. And he was charming, charming. Charming. He, he would go to the courthouse, and, and if somebody lost the case and they're all depressed, he would say, oh, what happened? How did you do? And they say, oh, I lost my case. He said, oh, if I was king, if I was in charge, you know, you'd be winning the cases. People loved it. They loved it. And then he was a little spiritual, too, kind of in a, kind of a fakey kind of spiritual way. He said to his father, David, he was really working against his father. He said, he said you know, I, I'm going to go and make an offering to the Lord. I'm going to make an offering to the Lord. And David probably thought, oh, that's good. I've been waiting for you to do that. And he went to Hebron, it says. And that was their old home area where their tribe came from. And they had lived there. And, 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 but what he was really doing, he was conspiring something terrible to overthrow and kill his father and all kinds of things. It was, it was a terrible situation. How many know this pressure? And then David's career was suddenly pressed. Everything had built up because Ahithophel and Absalom, this is all in the Bible, by the way. I'm not making this up. You can read it for yourself. I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version. They, they are marching with thousands of people to Jerusalem to, 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 to kill David. I mean, he has an emotional crash. The Bible says he took off his shoes with a few friends he had, and he just sat there and cried. Can you imagine the mighty David? There's this big, strong king. He's having an emotional breakdown. He's just weeping. Pressure. Everybody say pressure. And, and, and you know, he's going to lose everything. And, and, and finally he says, I don't even want to fight this. I, I give up. And, 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 he, and, he, and he heads out of town. And then comes another guy. Another one of these people, Shimei. 
Don't name your kid Shimei either. He, he's, like, he's like a guy who's been like mad for decades. You know, some people, can, they smile at you. Ooh. But then if they think that you're down already, they say, I'm going to kick him one more time. Well, that was Shimei. He says, now, he's got Ahithophel coming at him, and he's got Absalom, and he's weeping. He's kind of down emotionally. Let me kick him one more time. Because he had harbored this resentment for decades. So when David is even crying, and he's running, and, and he says, I don't want to fight, there comes Shimei suddenly with his baggage from 30 years earlier. And he says, David, you're a bloody man. You bloody David. He's in the Bible. And, 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 and one of David's friends, he had a few friends, he said, should I kill him? He says, no, no, he says, just, just leave him. Hey, maybe he's telling the truth. He's not sure what's going on. And, and so all this is happening. And if, if you look at this, if you want to kind of, where David is actually walking geographically, he goes across the Kidron Valley with his pain, where a thousand years later, the son of David would also be because the Kidron Valley is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Is that interesting? That's just for the real Bible scholars. I just added that in, all right? But, but that's not the main point. And so he's there, and the pressure is on. And our question today is, why does God call David a man of integrity? And we looked at integrity is able to be able to stand when the heat is on. And arguably some of this heat that David was feeling was of his own fault. Uh, how many ever felt like the heat is on? You feel like there's pressure on my life. That's why I have a message from the Lord for you today. Maybe you're sitting at home and you're facing pressure. Pressure of loneliness. Pressure of fear. Well, I want us to learn from the man who God said this man had integrity. He had the ability to stand when the heat was on. And so he wrote another psalm. He's coming there now. Remember, they're chasing him. He's lost everything. He's been weeping. And that's Psalm 3. And I want to give you seven points from Psalm 3. Verse 1. Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no help for him in God. He says, I have trouble everywhere. My enemies are growing by the day. And he says, I know what they're saying. They're saying not even God could help him. Has anybody ever said that about you behind your back? I think your trouble are so big, I don't even see how God could help you out of this. And he said, that's what they're saying. So the first thing I notice with, with David is this, he faces his trouble. Remember two weeks ago, I preached a message called Own It. Own your trouble. Own it. Take ownership of it. Don't run from it. He's the distress. He's feeling restricted. And he says, people are saying, there's no, and actually the word for help here, there's no help for him in God. It's actually the Hebrew word for salvation. They're saying, there's no salvation for him. There's no deliverance. There's no shalom. There's no, there's no peace for him. And you know what many people would do in that situation? They blame the devil. Or they blame people. But notice David isn't doing that. He's owning it. He's saying, that, that's what's going on. That's my reality. And I want to encourage you, you have the strength to face reality. You know, there's, there's three approaches here. One is the approach of saying, oh, everything is okay. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Oh, oh, yes, yes. You're about to get killed. But oh, hallelujah. I don't want to have any, say anything negative. That's called triumphalism. That is not what we practice. 
The other extreme is victimization. Oh, I don't know what I did wrong. I don't know. Why did this happen to me? David is not practicing triumphalism, and he's also not playing the victim card. Instead, what he's practicing is triumph, which is very different from triumphalism. Triumph means I know what's going on. I see the trouble I'm in. Maybe I caused it, other cause, but I'm in trouble, but my God is greater. I- I'm going to come through this with my God. I want to say to you, face it. If you had a lot of things go wrong, why did it happen? I mean, if, if the same thing went wrong 10 times in a row, maybe you did something wrong. Oh, no, I didn't. Oh, I feel traumatized. Don't say that. Well, I'm glad I'm traumatizing you a little bit it, to, to provoke you and to say, well, I, I own it. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. Most of us have enough sense that if something really went wrong, if we say, I had a part in that, we, we can own it and say that I want to learn from that. So that's what I find. He's not avoiding it. He's not pretending it's not there. He faces it. And then, then, uh, then he says, I'm going to read here. The second thing he does is he is proactive, not reactive. I'm going to read verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me. See, the reactive person, would withdraw into a cocoon and say, why God? Why me, Lord? What have I ever done, Lord? I don't know. It's everybody else's word. Why me? But the proactive person doesn't say, why me, Lord? He says, but you, oh God. You, oh God. He's saying, I know the situation looks hopeless. I know what the doctor said. I know what people are saying. But the picture is not complete unless you include God in the picture. And I'm saying, you, my God, you are greater. Am I speaking prophetically to someone today? But God, you are there. And I I can't see the whole picture unless I see God in the picture. And then he put a God filter on the situation. That's what integrous people do. When the heat is on, I say, I'm going to filter this picture. All the adversaries are everywhere around me. People are saying this and this behind my back. But I'm putting a God filter on this because you, my God, you are a shield all around me. He's saying all around me there is God. That's the best way he knew how to say it. If you were living a thousand years before Paul wrote his epistles, you would say that will be the ultimate. My God is a shield all around me. But of course we live in the new covenant so we can quote Colossians 3 and verse 3 where it says, I died and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. I'm surrounded by God. I'm in Christ. I am in God. If the devil is going to get to me, he has to get to God first. So I am victorious. He, he, he puts a God filter on it. He says, I know God has committed himself to me. He's saying that because he remember, you know, when Samuel anointed him to be king and all that. But for us, we take that on steroids. We have the part of that expression. But I mean, we got the new covenant. We have, we have more evidence. The, the, the cross 
And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Christ in you, Christ through you, Christ with you. What Jesus Christ did on the cross and the resurrection proves his love for you. Oh, we have something better. And, and, and then he says, my glory. He says, God, you're a shield and you're my glory. See, if, when, when people are in trouble, they tend to look for value and affirmation in others or in their position. If David's glory was in his position as king, if that was the thing, he's a king, that makes him glorious. Or if his glory was in his family or in the money he had, if that was his glory, then we could say, David, your glory is gone, gone. But he says, God, you are my glory. You are the one. Oh, come on, can somebody say that? God is my glory. You see, he doesn't become codependent. He says, I see my value in God. And then, then he says, and I put this, he begins to speak the language of faith. Speaks the language of faith. He says, the Lord lifts my head. You know, that's body language. Sometimes we think of language just coming from your mouth. But, but he says, the Lord lifts my head. He had every reason to have his head hanging down. And then it's kind of a comforting thing when you're sad to walk with your head hanging down because that attracts people to come and say to you, how are you doing, Peter? You can cry on my shoulder. Please do it. And I'll tell all my friends what you cried about, but I won't tell you that. You see, so he says, because I see who God is, I see who God is. He lifts my head. My body language changes. I'm look. Oh, come on, somebody. I'm looking up. I, I, I see who my God is. He, he, he says, I changed. And he says, I cried. That means like I yelled louder than the negative thoughts. Sometimes that's what the speaking words of faith is. It's yelling louder than the negative voices inside your head. He says, I cried. I yelled louder. I shouted louder. And the Lord helped me. In the new covenant, that is, that means simply that I believe, therefore I speak. I, 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 am I helping you today? Let, let, me, let me go back again. I got some more points. He, he, he faced the trouble. You know, let, let me say one thing more about that. Uh, a, a, a preacher who was a dear friend of mine for many years, even, even to the end, passed away recently. Some of you know of him, Morris Rullo. He, he actually came and preached in this church a number of years ago in Austin St. Catharines. And so he passed away. And, and some of you maybe are aware of that. Well, he taught me something wonderful. I had a, about a 10-year period. I was a lot together with him. We vacationed together. You know, some of you know more as Rulo, the preacher, but he was quite a fun man to be around when he was not preaching. Don't look at me like that. I'm going to tell you something he taught me that relates to this. In fact, I remember we went on holiday several times, and we were in New York on a holiday one time, and he said, let's you and I pretend that we want to buy a condominium. 
this was years ago. He said, let's go up in the Trump Tower and pretend we are bargaining for one of his condominiums. We did. We went up there and we just kind of walked around and, and, and smiled about it. And then we left because we didn't buy anything. But we, you know, it's just, a, we had a lot of fun. About one time I was traveling with him and we were somewhere across the Pacific Ocean and he had an airplane and I enjoyed that. I don't want an airplane, but he had one and I enjoyed flying on his because he paid the bill. Uh, and so, so all of a sudden, are you ready for this now? He was he, he talking, and, and he liked to play games. And then he said to me, he had this voice. I can't even imitate his voice. You know, some people have a voice that's just incredible. He had a voice like, Brother Peter, I'm going to give you a million-dollar idea. Are you listening? He said, yes, I'm listening. I don't think a million-dollar idea? I'm going to give it to you now. So are you listening? Are you listening? See, when he, when he told me this first, I didn't think it was worth a million dollars. But 25 years later, I think it was worth a million dollars. Are you listening to this? He says, are you listening, Peter? Are you li-? I said, I'm listening. What is it? It's a million dollars. I heard you the first time. He says, give me the idea. And then he said this. Are you with me? I'm going to say it in my own voice. He says, Deal with people, places, and things as they are in reality. Not as you are or as you wish they were, but as they really are. You say, is that worth a million dollars? In fact, it's probably worth 10 million if you understood what I was just saying. But you say, well, I don't know. Think about it. You say, well, I forgot it already. Buy the CD. Uh, 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 I say it one more time. Deal with people, places, and things as they are, not as you are or as you wish they were or as they pretend to be, but as they really are. That's what David is doing here. He's saying, I'm facing reality. I'm dealing with things as they are, not pretending. And he, that, that's true. That's true when you get married. Look at the one you're going to marry because the person is not going to change very much. Oh, that went over really good. I feel such an anointing. I'm always, I'm having a shaking attack here. Just saying that. Look at the person you're going into business with who wants you to sign over half of their life savings to get into this business. Take a good look at that person. He's my friend. He's so sweet. He bought me ice cream. Yeah, but he went bankrupt 10 times and lost everybody else's money. Look at it as it is. See, we live in an age where people think feelings are truth. I I feel this way, so it must be the truth. We don't want to hear facts. So I'm all for the facts. We don't want propaganda. We want the facts. Come on now. And so I'm grateful that he taught me some other things, but that was one lesson. And some of you say, I still don't see how that's worth a million dollars. Well... That's how I felt for the first two years after I heard it. Are you still there? So that's what he's facing. This is, but God, and, and, he, and he filters the situation, uh, putting a God filter on. He speaks the word of faith. And then he says, look at this. I'm almost finished. Look at uh, verse five. I lay down and slept. Really, David? You have thousands of people ready to kill you and you going to sleep? I, I get the point. I laid, and he could see them. He could see them. 
You can read about this story in Samuel. They were, they were camped over there. They were encamped around him. He says, I lay down and slept. And I awoke. For the Lord sustained me. <laughs> I will not be afraid of tens of thousands of people who have set the, themselves against me all around. He's saying, everywhere I look, I see tens of thousands of people. And they have bow and arrow aimed at me. Their spears are aimed for my heart. I think I'm going to go to sleep. What, what is, he's a man of integrity. So I put this down. Practice restful faith. So much of our teaching we have done here through the last few years, maybe not for a while now, but we've done a lot of it. Pastor Nathan has done a lot. I've done a lot. That faith is being restful. It's seizing from your own works. Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, basically those whole chapters are about resting in what Christ has done for you. But some people then, not through our teaching, but maybe through some kind of teaching, they misunderstand that and interpret that to mean that, oh, I can just get lazy and do nothing. But that's not what David is saying here. That's not what Paul said. David says, he says, I lay down and slept and I woke up sustained. I woke up strengthened. I was ready to go. And so the rest of faith is not some kind of lackadaisical, laid back, inactive, passive person. But you say, I'm resting in Christ and that sustains me. I wake up, I come out of that rest and I'm ready to go. You know, the Bible says in Philippians 2.12, I looked it up yesterday because I had it in notes from before, but I thought, is that really true? So I checked it again, you know, where it says, work on your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then it goes on to say, because it's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. You know that scripture? So, so it's kind of like, what, what is your job? Your job is to allow God, to work with God so that God can work in you. But then I looked at that word work. You know, that's the word energy. So you could translate that, God, it is God who energizes you to do what is his will and his pleasure. To think, so, so oh, thank God. That's, that's, a, that, that's a Greek word, energy. David is energized. I'm energized by the strengthened with might to be joyful and face life. Colossians 1 talks about he lives boldly. He, he says, I'm not going to be afraid. I will not be afraid of the 10,000s. I have too much energy to be afraid. You know, we live in a world. I just told you about a beautiful church you are. Oh, Pastor Nathan, you, you left the building when I told them how beautiful they are. But I know you believe that too. I said, I hear reports from all over the country, from other countries. You know, we, we have a pretty good crowd here. Look around. This is summer. This is summertime, vacation time. I hear horror stories. People are so afraid because we are under attack in fear in our country. Have you noticed that? I mean, you can't be breathing unless you feel the attacks of fear come at you. And so I, I would be amiss. I wouldn't be a good shepherd if I didn't caution you that God has not given you spirit of fear. Now, I understand we have to protect ourselves and everything, but you know, there is a, there's a thought that has come into our society. Some people call it safeism. Have you heard of safeism? It's like, I gotta be safe. We have safe toys for the kids. We have safe play areas, safe classrooms. Somebody did a survey in their church. 30% people said, I'm not coming back to church till it's safe. I said to this pastor, they will never come back. It never was safe. Coming, do you ever think there was a time when coming to church was safe? No, you're in danger sitting there right now. And you at home are even more in danger. 
It's risky to be alive, folks. You could have died in crib death. Maybe you should never have been born. It's not safe. It's not, nothing is safe. It's not safe doing anything. Staying at home is least of all safe because people get prone to depression and commit suicide. It's very unsafe. I don't know what you can possibly do. Well, so the mask is safe, but it's bad for your dental hygiene, so you may rot your teeth and die for that reason. Who knows? I, I don't know. Nothing is really safe. So I want to just say to you, I understand we're not going to do some, some crazy thing. I don't want you to jump off some tall building and say, oh, I don't care about safety. And of course we call it about safety, but there's an excessive safism. Safe. So people, well, I'm not coming to church, so it's safe. You will never be back. I don't know. You better not even go to the funeral home after you died because, because maybe that's not safe. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Friends, life, life is not safe. Are you excited or you look, you look shocked? You look like, I just told you something. You uh-huh. It's not safe. Nothing is safe. Nothing. I mean, who knows what's going to happen to you? You think it's safe? And then politicians say, we want Canadians to be safe. Don't do anything to you. Say, they, they want us to do nothing. My safety is not in a government. My safety is in God ultimately. No, I don't, I don't say do anything stupid. That's what I'm saying. If you need to stay home, and that's fine. You may be taking care of some elderly person or whatever. But, but let's not, I have to caution you. I'm not saying go and do something stupid and take some big risk now and prove. No, no. That's not what I'm saying. But I have to caution you. We are under attack to cripple us, to make us impotent. But that's not integrity. Because integrity says, there are 10,000s around me. Everywhere I look, I see nothing but hell and pain. But I shall not be afraid. I shall go to sleep, and I shall wake up, and I shall be sustained. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for that. Okay, let me finish the psalm. I'm almost done. Verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is on your people. You've got to be kidding. David, are you in your right mind? He can see Ahithophel and Absalom and Shimei and the whole bunch. And he says, God's blessing is on you people. <laughs> you know, he maybe felt like saying, wish you all dropped dead. But he says, I see blessing. What, what a generosity of heart. This is incredible. This is the person of integrity, has generosity. Oh, some people speak this way. They spoke that way against me. Oh, they did this. God bless you. God's blessing upon you. God's grace is for you too. Oh, that's what, that's what Jesus said. Oh, oh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And Stephen said, don't lay this sin to their charge. I mean, even Jesus said, when you go into a house, just wish peace on the house. Indiscriminately. He didn't say do a survey to see if they're worthy of peace. You don't want to go around spilling my peace everywhere here because, no, God is saying, listen, it's not for you to decide who deserves peace. Maybe some of the people who you don't think deserve it, they'll take it and run with it. And, then, and if they don't receive it, it'll bounce back on you, so just be happy. But it's not for us to, we just bless people. This is a person of integrity. And God says, Now, Solomon, look at your daddy. He walked in integrity. When the heat was on, 
when the pressure was everywhere, he rose up and he handled the pressure and he kept following his God. Unfortunately, Solomon didn't do that. But that's what God told him. Oh, hallelujah. I think I'm done preaching. Was that all right? Was it worth coming for? Was it worth coming for? So, so again, you have integrity. You are the upright. You trust in God's grace. You have integrity. Hold on to it. Use it. Whatever you're facing. I, obviously, I realize, though I am a prophet, I don't have to be a prophet to realize that some of you listening to me at, at home or on your phone or here, you, you, you have pressure, pressure. And you may feel like giving up. But I'm alerting to you. You have integrity. God's grace has given you strength to handle it. Say, I can handle it. Because of my God. Oh, David, have every reason to say, Oh, Lord, I just don't understand. If I, if I hadn't done that, if I hadn't messed up, if I hadn't, if I hadn't. Can I say something to you? If you've lived a little bit, maybe if you're very young, you can't relate to this. But most people can relate to this. Everybody has a question mark over their life. What if I hadn't done this? If I had enrolled in that university? If I had done this instead? Oh, if, if, if. Every person, David could have had that. But here's the good news. God is not in what could have been. God is in the now. He is here to refashion, restore, empower, redeem, make good for you. <laughs> See, our mind goes to say, it could have been. God says, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Because I see you now. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Did they turn on my coworker here? Yes, they did. I needed my coworker. Oh, I feel God's presence so beautifully here right now. I tell you, Jesus is here. Come on up here, singer. Jesus Christ is here. Whatever your past has been, whatever you say, if that hadn't happened, God is not into a discussion with you about your past. He says, I'm here now. Whatever it is, this day, we are starting afresh. Right now, right now, 